St. James Lutheran Church. 
really, really glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, just a quick announcement, as we have been doing, there is a Bible study. We're going to get together on Zoom right after this at 1030. If you'd like to be involved, please send me an email. If you have already signed up, you should have gotten an invite to that Zoom meeting already this morning. We're going to be looking at the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. We've been studying the Holy Spirit, and this morning we're going to start a discussion about the gifts of the Spirit, which I think is going to be really interesting and hopefully uh, super helpful. So if you want to be involved in that and participate, um, send me an email, and you can find that email on the church's website, and I'd be glad to send you an invitation uh, after the service this morning, but before the Bible study. Let's go ahead and begin worship. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We confess that we've worshipped too many other gods. We've devoted ourselves to all too many different values. Turn our hearts to you again. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We confess that we've visited all too many sanctuaries. We've tried to find the sources of life in all too many other places. Turn our hearts to you again. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We turn to you and to you alone to be our God our only God. Forgive our sins. Give us spiritual integrity. Give us wholeness and holiness. Answer us in the name of Christ, for he has promised to intercede for us. It's in him that we pray in the fellowship of his body. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all your sin. Hear the words of the gospel from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Amen. The psalm reading this morning is Psalm 146. It's a great psalm, and one of the things the psalmist in the psalm is doing is trying to get us to see that the things that we hope for out of our politicians, out of our rulers and government leaders, can only actually finally be accomplished by God himself. Fair play, the, the, the absence of oppression, these sorts of things, only the God of fairness and the God of justice and equality himself can accomplish. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. 
The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. The Acts reading is from Acts 6 and 7. It's two, uh, two stories here, both of them equally uh, fascinating. One is the calling of deacons. There's two offices in the New Testament. The church is called to have two offices, elders and deacons. And Acts 6 is when uh, the deacons were first called. And it leads into the story about one of the deacons, Stephen, and his martyrdom. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist Christians, the Christians of Greek descent, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, this is one of the deacons that was just called, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And now in the lectionary, it leaves out the next part of this text. But they basically, one of the things they do is they accuse Stephen of blaspheming against God and against Moses. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Now this is in chapter 7, and Stephen's going to spend the bulk of the chapter all the way up to verse 50, basically just retelling the story of Israel from the Old Testament, starting with Abraham going right up to the present day. Kind of what Paul is doing in Romans chapters 5 through 8 that we're studying in the sermon series. And it's not in our reading, that would be a very, very long reading, but it's super important to what Stephen's trying to say. And I would encourage you, if you get a chance sometime this week, to grab your Bibles and pick up Acts 7 and see the first part of his sermon. But we're going to pick it up in verse 51. So Stephen tells the story of Israel, and then he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The gospel reading is from John chapter 14, and Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it.
epistle reading for this morning, and the sermon text comes from uh, Romans 5. It's going to be the text that we looked at last week, the same text. Uh, We're going to check out uh, specifically verses uh, 17 and 18 this week. Therefore, Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been looking at Romans 5. Romans 5 through 8, I mentioned this uh, during the um, Acts reading earlier. Paul unpacks what uh, the sin problem is and how, in, in chapters 1 through 4 of Romans, what the sin problem is and how God manages to solve the sin problem of the world while maintaining his own holiness. Chapters 5 through 8 Paul unpacks that in real time. It's not theoretical, it's not philosophical, it's actually more historical. And he starts in the text that we're looking at uh, the past couple weeks and next week, he starts with Adam, he starts at the very beginning. And his main point in Romans 5, 12 through 21, is to explain to us how sin got here and why it shaped the shape of our lives the way it has. Why is it that we struggle with, why is it that we all know we're going to die? Why is it that we struggle with sin? He basically said, it's a a five-second recap of last week, it's because Adam rebelled against God, and in Adam, we all rebelled too, as a result of which, we all sin now, and we're all going to die. And you remember in verse 12, he he starts this comparison, just as but he never gets to the so also. He actually is going to get to the so also eventually in verse 18. But he interrupts himself in verses 13 through 17 to make a few clarifications. And we're right in the middle of those clarifications right now in our discussion. Next week we'll get to verse 18. And by the time we get there, we'll see that the clarifications have set it up so that we can really see what he's saying. But in the, in the clarifications, actually in the whole argument of Romans 5, 12 through 21, he's basically saying... There's two ways to be human. You can be human in Adam, or you can be human in Christ. In Adam's easy. You're in Adam just by virtue of being a human being who's been born. 
If you come from Adam, if Adam and Eve are your great-great-great-grandparents, you are in Adam. It's natural, and it leads to sin. This is the argument that he made last week. It leads to death, and it leads to condemnation. These three things, sin, uh, death, and condemnation. And it's not, you don't have to do anything. Just roll out of bed in the morning. Actually, even in bed, you're in Adam. In Christ, though, that way of being human is supernatural. It comes from outside of us. It comes from the one man, Jesus Christ, and his one act of righteousness. And again, Paul doesn't explain here specifically what that one act is. He talked about it back in Romans 3, and uh, we're going to discuss it in Romans chapter 6. But he's basically just stating the principle here. Also, can I make this one point too? Paul in Romans 5, he's discussing sin. He is not yet at this point helping us in our day-to-day struggle against sin. He's saving that for later. That's going to be the subject. Actually, it's going to be kind of the subtext of Romans 6 and 7. He's going to be helping us struggle against sin in our daily lives. He's not yet talking about that in Romans 5. And so if you're looking for that in Romans 5, perhaps a bit of disappointment. But but what what he's doing in Romans 5 is laying the groundwork so that we can struggle against sin, not in a fleshly way, but in a way that corresponds with our baptism, in a way that flows out of our union with Jesus Christ, the one righteous man who did the one righteous, one righteous act that he's describing here. So it's a necessary foundation here in Romans chapter 5. Now, uh, last week what we talked about was how Paul's making this comparison between being in Adam and being in Christ. And I, just real quickly, last week I was making the point that one of the things Paul says is that what, what being in Christ is, is far greater. It's not just in Adam, in Christ, you know, in Christ is good, in Adam is bad, and let's make a comparison. He's saying that the goodness of in Christ, the greatness of being in, in, in Christ, far, far surpasses the badness of being in Adam. And we're going to continue with that theme this week. Let me read to you. This is the two verses we're going to look at, 16 and 17. Let me read them to you again. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Let's stop right there and talk about verse 16 real quick. In verse 16, Paul says that there are three ways that the greatness of being in Christ far surpasses the badness of being in Adam. And those three ways are this. The power of grace is far superior to the power of sin. The scope of grace is far greater than the scope of sin. And the way that you get grace is far better than the way the results of sin work out in your life. And again, I'm not just saying that grace is better than sin. That's true enough. I'm saying that grace is more powerful than sin. The effects of grace, the effects of what Jesus has done for us, far more powerful, pervasive in scope and in uh, um, and power and energy than the effects of the sin in Adam. So first of all, the power of grace is far greater than the power of sin. This is what he says in verse 16. Check this out. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The judgment following one sin brought condemnation. This is the way it works. All it takes is one sin to bring condemnation. Let's say that you've lived a remarkably good and clean-cut life. You've been a good neighbor. Uh, you've kept your lawn looking fairly tidy. You've replaced your siding when it needed to be replaced. Uh, you've paid your taxes. Uh, perhaps you've jaywalked once or twice. 
but you've never done any sort of harm to anybody. You've been a good worker and a good citizen. Now let's suppose later on in your life, in a sort of freak moment of rage, you get in an argument with one of your neighbors and you murder him. And you go to court. And it's pretty clear cut. There's CCTV which shows the murder happening. There were several witnesses. It's hard for you to re- deny that you, were, that, that you actually murdered that person. If you say to the court, if you say, okay, look, so I'm guilty of murder. Uh, but honestly, I never one time in my life have, I've never done anything really bad before this. Like I've never sped in my car always paid my taxes. I've given to charitable enterprises. I've been a super nice guy to my friends and to my family. The court's going to say, sorry, all it takes is one murder for you to be a murderer. That's what Paul's saying here. One tra- now he's talking about Adams. One trespass leads to condemnation. But that's all it takes. All it takes is one sin for us to be a sinner. But now check this out. One trespass leads to condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. Justification has to be way more powerful than condemnation because justification doesn't have to overcome one sin. Justification has to overcome tons of sins, all the sins throughout your life. It wasn't just that you murdered once. Let's say that you murdered a bunch of times. Let's say that you stole a bunch of times. All the sins over the course of your life have to be overcome by justification in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what grace does. Grace is far more powerful in its scope, than in its its ability to overcome sin than sin was in its ability to to produce condemnation. Second of all, though, the scope of grace is far greater than the scope of sin. One sin leads to condemnation and death. This is the line we just looked at. The other supernaturally leads to justification. It's the same sort of angle, same sort of concept, but a little bit different angle. One sin, the sin leads, this is crazy that Paul says it like this. He says, one sin leads to condemnation. And you would expect him to say something along the lines of, but one crucifixion of his son leads to justification. But he doesn't. He says, um, he says, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. What does he mean? He means uh, like this. Let's go back to the courtroom. Let's say that somebody came into the court. Somebody somebody was arrested for stealing a loaf of bread. And they were guilty. Again, they were caught and there were witnesses. And the prosecution's got a fairly open and shut case. And they bring him into the courtroom and uh, the court has to decide, maybe we should show this person leniency. They've never up to this point done anything really, really bad. Uh, Their family was hungry. They weren't stealing uh, you know, they weren't stealing gold. They weren't stealing all the liquor. They were stealing some bread so their family could eat. And, and let's say this would take like an act of grace, right? There was, if you walked in having stolen the bread, you should anticipate that you're going to get punished, that you're going to get condemned for stealing the bread. But let's suppose in just sort of freak act of mercy, the court says, you know what? We're going to show you leniency. We're going to show you leniency. Now, as the court is saying this, imagine that somebody comes into the courtroom and says, we have just discovered evidence that on his way to steal this loaf of bread, he stole somebody's car to get to the store. That's going to change the nature 
of the judgment, right? It's going to be very, very much harder for the court to pass a not guilty or a leniency verdict when it's discovered that the person stole a car to get there to steal the bread. Somebody else soon rushes in and says, wait a second, we just discovered that he murdered the owner of the car to steal the car to get to the store to steal the bread. Well, as these offenses compound, it just becomes natural that because of the scope of them, there's going to be condemnation. But the scope of grace is so much greater than that. Look, if you walk into court and you're guilty, you should expect to be condemned. And the more guilty things you've done, the harsher the sentence should be. But here, the more guilty things you do doesn't affect the justice of the system. What if the court said, not guilty? Well, he stole the car to get there. there. You You know what? Not guilty. Well, he murdered somebody to steal the car to get there. Not guilty, the court says. That would be completely abnormal, completely supernatural. It would, in fact, in the reality that we're talking about, be completely in Christ. Because grace, in its scope, is that much more powerful than sin. Finally, the way that you get grace is far better than the way that you get sin and its results. Paul says free gift twice in this verse in the ESV. He says the free gift is not like the result later on. He says the free gift following many trespasses. The first time he just uses the word that can be translated free gift. Actually, the second time that free gift is here, he uses the word for grace. Just the word for grace. The grace that has been given to us is a gift. The gift that's been given to us is free. So much better than the condemnation that we've earned. Think about all the time and effort you've put into your life to become a sinner. Think about all the time and energy you've devoted to bitterness against that person to whom you're bitter. Think about all the time and energy and money you've devoted to that pet addiction of yours. Think about all the time and energy you've lost holding a grudge against somebody or being lazy at work, the man hours that have been lost and the progress that's been lost because of your laziness, my laziness. It takes a ton of work. It takes a ton of work to be bitter. Work that will only be expended at the moment of our death, like, like cancer. It's only finished doing its work when it's finally killed us. Grace is not like that, though. Grace takes no work at all. Grace is just given to you, no questions asked. That's the free gift of justification. Grace is much better than justification. Thus, verse 16. Let's move on to verse 17. Now, maybe you're thinking, uh, okay, this is all sort of like theologically interesting. Maybe if you're kind of like theologically prone in your thinking, this is conceptually interesting. This is, okay, so Adam sins and all the sin, the blame for the sin goes to us too. And also the propensity to sin comes to us. And because of that sin and condemnation and death comes to us. And all that sort of, but how is this supposed to help me in my real life? Like, how is this, like, what does this mean to me personally? Verse 17 is going to help make this real. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The problem, and I said this last week at the end of the sermon, I'm going to come back to it here again because Paul uses the word reigned in verse 17 twice. The problem is that sin isn't just a hobby or a habit, something you do when you're not feeling very righteous. Sin is an alien agent whose desire is to govern us, to rule over us, to reign over us, to enslave us. 
Sin wants to control us. This is the nature of sin. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the first sin after that sin that's recorded in the Bible. Cain kills his brother Abel. Now God knows that Cain is starting to hate and be bitter against his brother Abel. And so he comes to him and says, you know, what's the deal? It doesn't need to be like this. And he says this to him in chapter 4, verse 7 of Genesis. He says, sin is crouching at your door like a wild animal. It wants, its desire is for you. It wants to rule you, is what that means in Hebrew. But you must rule over it. Sin wants to control you. That's sin's desire. It's to be your master and for you to be its slave. According to Paul in Romans 5, which we're reading, we lost that battle. But Paul, Paul tell, God tells Cain, sin's desires to rule over you, but you must rule over it, and we just haven't been able to. Sin reigns over us. Actually, in verse 17, death reigns over us. Down in verse 21, he's going to say that sin reigned over us in death. Sin and death rule and reign over us. What do you do when you're a slave? What do you do if you're a slave? You basically have two choices. You can fight or you can submit. If you've ever studied uh, uh, slavery in the antebellum American South, you'll see that these are basically your two options to slavery. You can fight against the slave owners or you can just submit to them. More likely is the case historically. You fight and then you either die or you submit. You're either killed by the slave-owning system, the slave owners, or you submit. This is our two options, right? This is all, 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 this is all, all we can do. We can fight against sin, and we can submit against sin eventually. There's a movie that I like called Sullivan's Travels. It's an older movie. The main character in the movie is a guy named John L. Sullivan. He's a, a Hollywood producer. In the movie, he's a Hollywood uh, producer of comedies. At one point in the movie, he gets thrown into prison, and he's in a prison camp working, um, do, doing a heavy manual labor, and he hates it. He thinks he's there unjustly, and he wants to fight. He wants to fight against the, the warden, the, the, the guy who's, ahead of, who's in charge of his chain gang. And one of the other longtime older prisoners says to him, look, you can't do that. If you fight against him, you're going to get thrown in the box, which is, it does happen to Sullivan in the movie. The box is... Um, a wooden box, a little bit shorter than the height of a person, and just barely a little bit wider. The door in the front, and the prisoner, the, the rebellious prisoner, is thrown in there and locked in there, out in the baking sun, to heat inside of this tiny, cramped wooden box, unable to sit down or lay down. That's the threat. This is what happens to those who fight. But the, the, the fellow prisoner says to Sullivan, if you just stay calm and work and don't fight, they'll let us go to the moving picture shows. There's an old church out in the woods close at hand, and on Sunday evenings, the church invite the prisoners to come, all chained together, and sit there in the back of the church, and they break out an old reel-to-reel movie projector, and they watch cartoons, old uh, Mickey Mouse cartoons. That's the one treat they have going for us. This is what sin does to us. You can fight or you can submit. If you fight, you are going to get squashed. If you submit... It'll throw you a treat every once in a while. Anybody who's ever struggled with a porn addiction or an addiction to alcohol or drugs or an addiction to shopping will know that this is the case. You know that you hate it, you're ashamed of yourself for fighting against it and always failing, but it'll throw you a little treat every once in a while, a little moment of pleasure. And even in the moment of pleasure, you know it's going to take it away and reinforce that you are its slave, but you can't resist. 
bread circuses, right? That's what the Roman Empire gave its slaves. Make sure they get food, make sure they get a little bit of entertainment, and they'll submit to us. Well, this is the life of those who struggle against sin, and I've seen this tons of times in my counseling. I've seen this reign of sin. I've seen people come in and say, there's three stages to people who fail and finally submit to sin. There's the stage of, I know this is wrong, and I'm going to fight against it. And then that moves to, I know this is wrong, but I can't, I, I just can't lick it. It's got me. Two, I don't think this is wrong. I just, it's, it's, I'm just going to live like this. That's what we do psychologically in submitting to the lives of our sin. Don't, don't let that be the case with you, by the way, as a little uh, uh, side point. Don't let that be the case with you where you ever get to the point where you justify your own sin by saying, it's not a big deal. At that point, you are a greater slave than you've ever been because you're a blind slave. You're a slave who's blind to his own slavery. And that's exactly what sin and death want. That sin, death works the same way too. The two options you have in your slavery against death are to fight against it or to submit to it. Two poems for you. Some of you are familiar with the Dylan Thomas poem. I'll quote this is the first stanza for, for you. Do not go gently into that good night. This is the fight option against death. Dylan Thomas says, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That's one option. Just like uh, Sullivan in the prison camp, though. You're just going to get beat down. You can't win that fight. You can't win the fight against sin and death. They rule and they reign. Their political power, their cultural power, their actual power is too great for us to beat it. The second option, of course, is to submit to the rule of death. A quick poem by John, just the stanza of a poem by John Dryden from the 17th century. Here's what he says. Since every man who lives is born to die, and none can boast sincere felicity. He means none can boast sincere happiness. First of all, he's wrong. We're not born to die. We were born to rule and reign over God's creation with him. It's the Garden of Eden. But if you submit to death, this will be your attitude. As everybody goes through it, it's just the great circle of life, right? Here's what Dryden says we should do with that attitude, the attitude of submission to death. With equal mind, what happens, let us bear. Nor joy, nor grieve too much for things beyond our care. Learn to not care too much about things. Like pilgrims to the appointed place we tend. The world's an end, and death the journey's end. This attitude of submission to death or fight against death, both futile. The fight almost seems necessary to fight against sin and death because it's so miserable. But you know you can't win, and so submission almost seems inevitable. You hate this, though. You know you do. I hate it, too. We weren't created for this. And that's why the hope that God gives us at the, verse, at the end of verse 17 is just unbelievably remarkable. This is one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible. Because being ruled over, being a slave to sin and death, is not your destiny in Jesus Christ. Check out what he says here. He says, look at the beginning of verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Death reigned, ruled through that one man. What do you think he's going to say next? Just as death reigned, Life will someday reign. That's true, of course, but that's not what he's going to say. Just as death reigned, grace will someday reign. That's true, too, but again, that's not what he says. What about this, though? 
just as death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will Jesus reign. This is true too, right? I mean, Jesus is going to reign and reign. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But that's not what Paul says here. Look, look, this is so super important. Check out what Paul says here. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, sin and death are our slave overlords, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Much more will those who know Jesus reign. Do you see what he's saying here? Just as sin and death reigned, much more will you reign. This is your destiny. Like I said earlier, God created us for this. In the Garden of Eden, God designed and made us to be his vice regents, his prime ministers over this creation. We abandoned that calling through rebellion and sin and death creeped in and became the slave overlords of the universe. But Jesus is now taking back that rule and reign so that you and I can have it someday. Look, you walk into the courtroom. Too often we as Lutheran Christians, we as Protestant Christians, are too content with, with, with this as far as it goes. You walk into the courtroom, the judge looks at you and says, for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ, I declare you not guilty. And we say, that's great. That's what we want. We want justification. This is, I'm not not saying that's not important, super important. It's the ground of everything I'm about to say next. But it goes much farther than that. The judge doesn't just say to you, I'm giving you justification in Jesus Christ. It's like the judge would say to you in the courtroom, I declare you, in spite of all the evidence, for the sake of my son, I declare you not guilty, and now I'm appointing you mayor of this town. It's not just justification. It's the rule and the reign of all creation that God is giving you. Sin will no longer exist. It will no longer be the master of the universe. Death will no longer exist. It will, not, it will no longer be the master of the universe. Jesus is the Lord of the universe, and in him, by justifying us, he's making you and I lords of the universe too. Coming up in chapter 6 and chapter 7, we'll see how that works out in our day-to-day life. Not just in the future. This is true in the new creation, but it's already starting to happen in the here and now. Stay tuned for Romans 6 and 7. We'll talk about it then. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this promise that through the uh, blessing of justification in your son, Jesus Christ, the effects of the one man, Adam's sin in the world, sin and death and condemnation, are being subdued and obliterated. Their rule and reign has been deposed. And now you are making us, once again, your prime ministers here on this earth. The meek will inherit the earth, you promised in the Beatitudes. And you're making that reality come to pass here even now in your people, the church, especially in the new creation when you come and you rule and reign here on this earth and set us up as your rulers with you. Help us to live with hearts of service and love, knowing that you've, been give, you've given us this gift of ruling and reigning with you here on this earth. We pray again as we have uh, each week the past couple months that you would cure this virus, that you would protect all those who are busy keeping us safe from it, that you would give wisdom and guidance to our political leaders who are trying to make tough choices and they're doing it in in an environment when other people are disagreeing with them and uh, nobody actually really knows what's going to happen in the future. And so the decisions that have to be made are incredibly complex and tough. Uh, Give them wisdom. Give the church wisdom. Lord, help us to keep on being your church through this Strengthen and grow us together, as impossible as it might seem when we're not together. Strengthen and grow us together 
by the power of your Holy Spirit through his gifts to your church. I also want to pray, especially this morning, and give you thanks and praise for the mothers that you've given us. And this is something that we should be praying for every Sunday, either out loud here at church or on our own. Uh, Father, whoever our moms are, uh, you've given them to us to shape and mold us to be the people that you want us to be. And they picture and they image the love of the Trinity for us in the way they've cared for us, in the way they've raised us, in the way they still pray for us, or those of us who have godly mothers, in the way they still uh, tenderly uh, bring us before your throne, uh, interceding on our behalf. I pray that you would bless them and give them long life and lots of health and strength. And for our mothers who have gone on before us and our grandmothers and great-grandmothers and all the legacy of godly womanhood that you've put in the lives of many of us, we give you thanks. We pray that you would reunite us with them soon when you come and rule and reign over this creation. Father, be with us as we continue worshiping with you, uh, worshiping you now together as your people. Be with us in the Bible study that's going to follow. May your name be glorified, and may none of us ever say that we caused any good thing to happen, but may we eternally give you the praise for all those good things. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen.
Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Amen.
Try.